0: Hi everyone, thank you for joining us this evening. We're going to get going. Uh, My name is uh, Naveed, and my pronouns are he, him, and I'll be facilitating tonight's event. Uh, I'm an activist with Barnet Transformed, Lesbians Gay Support the Migrants, uh, as well as working in human rights and international aid. Um, We're here tonight to discuss the uh, policing crime sentencing and courts bill. Uh, currently being rushed through Parliament with very little scrutiny uh, and it represents a full-scale assault on our civil liberties. Expansion of stop and search, restrictions on the right to protest uh, and further criminalisation of traveller communities are just some of the egregious things this bill uh, will do if passed Um, and it's been published in the context of a government that is determined uh, to entrench state violence, violence that is always racialized and discriminatory in its application. Uh, we've seen this violence meted out to migrants protesting the inhumane conditions that they're forced to live in, uh, police fo- uh, horses uh, charging at BLM protesters last summer, uh, threats to those organizing in support of trans rights, uh, and Gypsy Roma traveler communities violently prevented from simply seeking to go about their lives. Uh, And of course, many will have been shocked at the police attacking those who simply wanted to mark the death of Sarah Everard, uh, someone who was allegedly murdered by a member of the Met Police. We're extremely lucky to have a brilliant lineup of speakers to take us through what the bill means for our rights, the political context in which it has been published, uh, hear from communities most impacted uh, and discuss our options for resistance. Uh, On which note, whilst Labour have belatedly stated that they will vote against it the fight now is to have the bill withdrawn entirely so if you are on social media please feel free to share uh, about the event with the hashtag kill the bill uh, Labour MP Bell Ribera added has also tabled an amendment to have the bill thrown out uh, and details on how you can support that are being shared in the chat right now I think CWU have done a a form in which you can fill in which uh, will email your MP to get them to support uh, the amendment. Uh, We're also encouraging you to sign a netball petition uh, against this legislation but also calling for a new 11-point charter for freedom of assembly rights Uh, and we'd also like to give a shout out to Sisters Uncut, a direct action group of women and non-binary people taking action against domestic violence, uh, service cuts, um, and they organize the recent vigils in uh, Clapham Common and Parliament Square uh, and that link is also being shared in the chat for you to join support and uh, donate to them. Uh, in terms of how this evening will proceed, we'll have uh, various uh, speakers give their presentations um, and there may be time for a formal Q a at the end uh, but I also want you to encourage want to encourage you to post uh, questions throughout uh, either in general, or to specific people. uh, And I'll ask that they speak to them during their presentations where possible. Um, And just a little bit of housekeeping to to go through. Uh, When posting questions, please keep them respectful and comradely. Um, If you do need transcription services, uh, please watch this event on Facebook uh, as it will provide subtitles. And the link to the uh, Facebook stream is again being posted in the chat as well. And lastly, to say as well, these TWT events are free for everybody, but are also only made possible through the contributions of our supporters. If you are able to, please consider supporting the TWT Supporters Network via the link uh, in our chat so we can run more events like this. Um, I want to move to our first speaker, but I just want to check if we have got Shami on the call right now, otherwise I'll move to, to our, next, our next speaker. So. Uh, yes, brilliant. Okay, yes. Yeah. So our first speaker is, is Shami Chakrabarti, barrister, human rights activist, former director of Liberty, a personal hero of mine, as I'm sure she is to many others. Um, and Shami, it'd be great to hear from you about the various ways in which this bill is part of a wider attack on our civil liberties and what future fights we should be preparing for. Over to you, Shami.
1: Thank you, Navid. And thank you so much to the organisers at TWT for, for putting this event together at at short notice, it, we, we need to be nimble, um, uh, and we we all need to be heroes. We need to be brave right now. So, as you've heard, this is a this is a very scary bill. It's an incredibly authoritarian measure, but it is part of a wider far right agenda that is now that is now taking hold in Number Ten. Let's be absolutely clear about it. Um, the, the Johnson the Johnson leadership you know in the past has tried to try to look this way and that way on things like civil liberties you know he's famously the guy that writes two writes two articles before he decides where he stands on brexit well as we know he's written lots of other articles as well that were nothing to do with brexit but that were overtly, Um, racist and divisive this is a divide and rule government and they are playing some very very dangerous games uh inciting culture war and that is what this authoritarian agenda is is really all about you know they've unleashed their their far-right brexit but they they need to keep feeding the beast they need to keep feeding these appetites that are for culture war and division and of course in the process they will they will trample all over our our precious rights and freedoms and of course you know these people who are always banging on about free speech and terrible cancel culture as they call it of the left they do not see free speech as a two-way street be absolutely clear about that they are um, they are going to use their massive majority if they possibly can to um, to embed themselves in all institutions, and not just to not just to consolidate uh, their, their their victory over opponents, but to destroy those opponents and destroy hard won rights and freedoms in the process. That is what we're dealing with. We're looking at the government that instituted the spy Cops bill, the covert human intelligence uh, services criminal conduct bill. Something that I, never thought I that I never thought I would see um, granting advanced total criminal immunities to agents of the state. and they did this even though the spy cops inquiry had, had barely begun. Think about how dangerous that is. Think about the opportunities for agent provocateurs to, um, to, to disrupt and seriously harm our movements for radical and progressive change in the future. They've, um, they're have they now taking through Parliament the Overseas Operations Bill that again is an attack on the vital principle of equality before the law uh, in order to, uh, to ensure that the laws reach the reach of the Human Rights Act and the reach of criminal prosecutions will not touch war crimes, torture, um, crimes against humanity will, will all be beyond um, uh, the reach of the authorities um, if they aren't dealt with within within 5 years which is a very very short time to deal with these sorts of atrocities as you know and now of course um this bill um you've heard about the the fantastic leadership that bell ribeiro addy is, is is demonstrating in parliament and on the airwaves please get in touch with MPs with labor MPs um and all MPs her, her reasoned amendment which is going down tonight has the support and people from all the opposition parties and what's great about this amendment is it doesn't just say this bill isn't tough enough, this um, it not harsh enough in relation to perpetrators against women, it covers all the things that are wrong with this bill, the things that you've heard about, the attack on travellers rights, the attack on protest rights and of course the attack on women too. Human rights are indivisible they're not uh, they're not something to um to to jump on when it's convenient you you, you have to precious you have to you have to protect these hard won precious rights or they are gone particularly with this far right populist government um think of russian dolls think of the biggest russian doll as the johnson administration and inside that sits the brexit party and inside that um sits the what was the bnp And that is the coalition that Johnson has has built and is seeking to consolidate um, to the destruction of, of, of all else. And we cannot let this happen because down the road, the principle of judicial review of government action and the Human Rights Act, even the Human Rights Act itself, are in their sights. we must take a stand, we must pull together and make the defence of rights and freedoms on the street and everywhere else in our public life an absolute priority. Thanks for doing this and um, let's all pull together uh, behind Bell's leadership and and those of others uh, of your generation, a fair bit younger than me, who are now taking the mantle forward in this movement. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you, Shami, and that's a kind of, you know, rallying call that we we need for kind of evenings like this. Um, And thanks for also kind of setting the context, mentioning the spy cops, the torture bill, um, all of those things that are kind of being done to to restrict our our civil liberties. Uh, We're going to be posting that uh, CWU link to support Bell Ribeiro Addy's uh, amendment throughout um, the evening. And I think, you know, pointing out that, you know, this is an amendment designed to stop the bill as opposed to maybe some criticism we saw a few days ago without specifying who that wasn't entirely clear as to what it, what its opposition was so thank you so much for for joining us we'd obviously be delighted if you were able to stay but appreciate that you've got a lot to do so so thank you so much for for joining us this evening Thanks. um we're now going to move on to uh, Zara Hassan uh, we're really lucky to have her with us with us this evening uh, zara is a barrister and director of black protest league of support Um, And Zara also works to improve our understanding of human rights law. Uh, She wrote a really, really great article in uh, Navarra recently, kind of foreshadowing what this bill might have in it. Um, And so she's in a really great uh, position to help us break down the bill uh, and speak to some of the work that Black Protest Legal Support have been doing in observing protests and and supporting protesters. So if you could speak to some of that, Zara, and over to you.
2: Cool. thank you so much Naveed and thanks to um, TWT for having me and for yeah mobilising so quickly. Um, so I'm going to talk specifically about the police crime sentencing and courts bill which um, as people have already mentioned is a major assault on the right to protest and a significant move to furnish authoritarian power. And the catalyst for this has clearly been the way that protest movements have been so powerful and effective in drawing attention to state violence, systemic injustice, and in challenging state institutions, and vitally the Black Lives Matter movement spotlight on police brutality. Um, And so in an attempt to stifle dissent and quash this crucial tool of collective resistance, this bill seeks to devastate the right to protest in ways that, as I'll explain later, will inevitably disproportionately harm racialized and marginalised protesters. And it will also allow the police to continue and expand the ways they restrict demonstrations after the COVID regulations fall away, regulations which have been heavily relied upon over the last year to effectively ban protests. And so, as Shami sort of set out, this bill is part of a pervasive effort by this government to suppress protest as a vital form of resistance. And so, there are three things I, I want to address. Um, the first is how this bill would change existing law, um, the second is how the legislation would directly impact protesters. Um, And thirdly, just thinking about how we can resist it. So in terms of how would the bill change existing law, the starting point is that the police already have considerable power, which they enforce all the time to limit protests. Um, And these powers and the way that they are used by the police are already an affront to our fundamental right to protest. And what what this bill partly seeks to do is lower the legal tests, so the legal thresholds which are required for the the police to use um, those powers. So, for example, the bill would enable conditions to be imposed on marches and static protests where the noise generated may, and I quote, result in the intimidation or harassment or cause serious unease, alarm or distress to bystanders the conditions the police can impose on static protests would also be widened so this would include police chiefs being able to impose a start and finish time set noise limits and apply rules to demonstrations involving just one person the police could also impose conditions to prevent a wide range of circumstances including disorder, damage, disruption, impact or intimidation The bill further leaves decision making on how to restrict specific protests to uh, specific um, and senior police officers. And whereas before a protester who, or currently rather, um, a protester would breach a condition if it occurred knowingly, the bill would change this to a breach happening where a protester failed to comply with a condition they ought to have known had been enforced. The proposed law also includes an offence of intentionally or recklessly causing public nuisance and this provides that a person's act or omission which causes serious harm to the public or a section of the public or obstructs the public from exercising their rights is criminally liable. And the definition um, egregiously of an act or omission which causes such serious harm to the public includes where a person suffers serious annoyance or serious inconvenience and a person guilty of this uh, very wide-ranging offense could be liable to a maximum of 10 years imprisonment. Um, The bill also seeks to impose similarly authoritarian measures on people who vandalize statues and war memorials And that's another maximum 10 year sentence. And make no mistake, um, the Met's publicity stunt um, surrounding the Churchill statue on Parliament Square yesterday was a means essentially of trying to justify this provision. Um, We had legal observers on the ground and no one one was near the statue until the police decided to form a line around it, drawing attention and the protest there purposefully for their photo opportunity. So there are many things which are horrific and striking about the provisions I've outlined, but the three key points are, firstly, how broad the language of the legislation is and how this leaves wide scope for interpretation by the institutionally racist police and courts. Um, Secondly, how much power it affords to the police to restrict protests. And thirdly, how harsh carceral punishments are meted out for its proposed offences. And of course, the entire point of protesting is to cause impact, to disrupt, to dissent loudly and to be visible. And so by trying to curtail every aspect of civil disobedience and criminalise years old protest and direct action tactics, this bill does erode our right to protest and puts police impunity on the ground on a legislative footing. So turning to how this legislation would directly impact on protesters. Um, in essence, this bill would be another very heavy tool in the state's racist, patriarchal, transphobic and classist armory. The levels of police brutality will likely persist and even worsen, and the legal repercussions will be detrimental to marginalised communities. Firstly, in terms of police brutality, we know the police have always treated black, brown and racialized protesters with particular contempt and violence. Um, Mangrove protests in uh, 1970, the Black People's Day of Action in 1981, tells us two stories of institutional racism in wider policing, as well as institutional racism in the policing of protests, and nothing has changed. Um, Black protest legal support saw the police deploy riot gear, routinely rely on physical and verbal intimidation, and charge horses at people at the Black Lives Matter protests last summer. We also saw the police use batons against the Tamil community in Harrow just yesterday at a peaceful protest outside the home of the British Tamil woman who has been on hunger strike. So whilst what happened to protesters at Saturday's vigil for Sarah Everard on Clapham Common was horrific, and we stand in solidarity with those assaulted, arrested and violated by the police, we must not forget that our black brothers, sisters and siblings Non-black racialized people and trans people are subject to this level of state and police violence all the time, on the streets, in police stations and in prisons. We know the police are five times more likely to use force against black comrades and nearly one in three incidents involving the use of force are against black, brown or racialized people. So giving the police more power will only worsen violence against these communities of protests. The police will of course use more force, intimidation and violence against protesters when they feel emboldened to do so by the law. Um, And because of the COVID regulations at the moment, that's what we saw at BLM and that's what we saw again this weekend. And also by providing more scope for interpretation through vague and broad terms and provisions in the bill and a much wider range of protest related offenses, we can be fairly certain that with this bill will come more police brutality and impunity. Black, brown and racialized protesters will be at the sharp end of this, and yet we know that the public outcry against the use of force on protesters will again be informed by racism in the media and in wider society. It's also clear that the vague provisions and weighty penalties will most impact those already heavily criminalised by the state and who disproportionately face legal repercussions. Um, For example, in January this year, the police were called to a protest staged by asylum seekers outside the horrific Folkestone Napier Barracks. The protest saw 100 people walk out and some people sleeping outside in resistance to conditions in the building. The fact there was a policing response at all is reprehensible, but if this bill hands out greater powers to quell such actions or to criminalize those taking part, people with precarious immigration status are at heightened risk particularly in a system where racist deportations exist. We also know that black, brown and racialized people are subject to disproportionate charging and sentencing decisions within the criminal punishment system. Um, Black, brown and racialized people represent 27% of those in prisons, despite being 14% of the population. And in the youth punishment system, nearly half of children incarcerated are black, brown or racialized people. So the bill, with its penalization of protesters, as well as wider provisions to criminalize Gypsy Roma traveler communities and the imposition of serious violence reduction orders will deepen existing racial oppression. We know that police powers will always harm racialized and marginalized groups the most. Policing is institutionally violent and racist. And so if this bill becomes law, it will perpetuate the very oppression Black Lives Matter and this weekend's protests have sought to challenge. So lastly how can we resist it? Um, I mean it's obviously vital that we stand firmly against this narrowing space for civil disobedience, the attempted silencing of black voices and the chilling effect this will have on protest rights more broadly. The strategic architecture of this legislative threat alongside the Spy Cops Bill, um, the recent report, um, the attack on the Human Rights Act and Judicial Review our concerted efforts to weaken the protection of our fundamental rights and our ability to call this out on the streets. And so in a system that's built on our oppression, our collective power through protest cannot be underestimated. We've already seen the mobilisation against this bill through protest, um, including the Sisters on Cuts, um Kill, Kill the Bill demos um, and Black Music Movement's protest on Parliament Square this afternoon. Um, we, uh, Navid's already mentioned the Netpol petition, um, and there obviously is also the Right to Your MP action. And Black Protest legal support is continuing to send legal observers to protests to monitor the police's actions. Um, we had people there all weekend. Um, we had people. Um, we have people on the ground right now, as we speak, um, at the Sisters Uncut vigil on Parliament Square, and we're also very proud to be a movement led by black and brown activists and that our women and non-binary legal observers, um, particularly those who are black and brown, have been on the front lines. And that is, in our view, what material protection and solidarity looks like. So whilst we have to continue challenging this bill on every level in Parliament, through the courts, the only way to materially resist the state suppression of our right to protest is through protest itself. Um, I think it's important to remember that the law is limited, what we can achieve through parliament is limited, um, but our collective dissidence is not. Um, so that's what I wanted to say and kind of happy to respond to any questions if we've got time.
0: Brilliant, thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, And, you know, there's almost a kind of, you know, joke in the idea of kind of being locked up for, for being seriously annoying or causing a serious inconvenience if it wasn't for the fact that you know, it's a real prospect and, and open to some really kind of grim interpretations. Um, in terms of questions, there's been a few about, you know, that kind of resistance. And you kind of covered it there in your kind of concluding words about, you know, protest being the kind of most potent form of resistance. Um, but speaking as a barrister, um, you know what are possibly those kind of judicial options if the if the bill were to to, to become law, um, and you know very briefly, like in a minute or two, um, and why do you think those avenues are maybe limited, though?
2: Yeah, I mean, I've always said I think that the law is limited, even though it's sort of my day job, and and that's why I do so much activism outside of it. But I think that. Um, Obviously, you know, the the right to protest is protected by Articles 10 and 11 of the Human Rights Act. And so if the bill does pass or um, the legislation is enforced following kind of it it becoming law, there are obviously ways to argue that um, its enforcement is not compatible with our fundamental human rights. But the reason that I say that it's limited is because we've seen, even from the judgment in the High Court um, last week, in terms of what Reclaim These Streets was trying to do, um, you know th- there are lots of problems in terms of how that was run and and the kind of outcome um, but ultimately the court didn't um, wasn't firstly wasn't asked to and secondly didn't um, enable a protest to go ahead uh, in you know in, in a lawful uh, lawful way in, in the eyes of the law um, and and I think that shows the kind of complicity um, of the court system in upholding police power um, because the court essentially said it's up to the police to decide what is proportionate. Um, So that's why I say that the law is limited. Um, I see that there's a question about you know whether it's possible to stop a bill from passing through through civil disobedience and I think Ultimately, you know, there's so much that's possible through civil disobedience. We've seen how the protests this weekend have kind of mobilized labor to um, oppose the bill, um, as opposed to being whipped to abstain. Um, and so, you know, there, there is there is scope to kind of get things done through protest. Uh, but like I say, we have to try it on all levels, but not forget that the power of protest is so significant. And you know, the fact this is even happening almost shows. How significant and and powerful it can be
0: Yeah, brilliant. and I think that reminder that you know the judiciary and the courts are part of that establishment architecture is really important. I recall when you know the Supreme Court decided that Boris Johnson had lied to the queen that there was this big celebration and I think some of the judges were celebrated as like heroes. Um, but as you point out, like on a continual basis, uh, the court systems, you know the court system does up uh, you know uphold what, establishment wants it to do so you know we need to be careful of that so that's a really important reminder and thank you for kind of breaking down those those technical aspects of of the bill Um, i want to move on now to to our next speaker becca hudson um, and uh, she is an organiser, a really brilliant organiser, I'm sure a lot of you know some of the actions and campaigns that she's organised previously. Uh, she's also a researcher on uh, mental health prisons and empire and Zara mentioned the kind of carceral aspect of, of this bill so is so in a really great position to speak about that and also uh, the kind of sentencing aspects but also uh, when you speak Beck, could you also kind of cover maybe the political context of of where this bill comes from and maybe what alternatives uh, look like. So over to you.
3: Thanks so much, and thank you um, for TWT for having me. I'd just like to say off the back of um, what we've heard from, from Zara and about the kind of importance of protest that when this bill was first announced, when it was kind of came up in the news that this bill was going to be brought forward, it was largely being reported as a bill that was about protecting young people from. Uh, sports coaches who wanted to start sexual relationships with them which is one of the provisions in the bill but that was the way that the headlines about what was in the bill were put on radio in lots and lots of news write-ups that was the kind of key framing so I would just like to say that not only uh, has Labour's change in position been produced by protest but the very way in th- that this bill is being discussed and reported on has been massively moved because of the work of people on the ground and because of that protesting and specifically to shout out Sisters Uncut on their incredible work in switching that dial completely to the other end so that now people know and refer to this bill as the police crackdown bill and are talking about kill the bill whereas before were it not for those kind of mobilizations I doubt that it would have had this much scrutiny at all it wouldn't be subject to this much public scrutiny and scrutiny within parliament as well so protest does work um so I wanna respond to what Nav was saying about kind of the political context. And I think that Zera has covered a lot of um, the way in which protests are already subject to um, a very, very kind of draconian and narrow scrutiny in this society and the way in which we have seen over the course of the pandemic, increasingly a number of protests being subject to police crackdowns and police brutality. Um, And this is happening in a context of a law and order government, right? Like this should put to rest the idea that Boris Johnson brought in lockdown late because he's a libertarian that cares deeply about civil liberties, he does not. From the minute that Boris Johnson took office, he stood on the steps of 10 Downing Street and he said he would hire 20,000 more police officers and he would form a law and order focused government. Uh, And he's staying true to that promise in bringing forward this bill. Um, So I think we can put to rest the idea that he is a libertarian in any sense of the word. Now, why is he bringing forward this bill? So what is the kind of wider political context that we're looking at? Particularly after COVID, we're seeing escalating unemployment and very precarious forms of employment. There are tens of thousands of people who are struggling to pay their rent and are in rent arrears in London alone. I know it's a significant percentage of renters who are unable to make rent under the conditions of the pandemic. We're seeing from you know, the kind of activism of people like Marcus Rashford, the sheer scale of the number of families who are unable to feed their children in this country. And This bill is not divorced from those problems. The government are telling us that they are going to deal with those kind of social problems through police and prisons, that they will meet poverty, that they will meet desperation, and that they will meet people unable to meet their basic needs with a carceral response, be it prisons, courts, uh, or policing, as well as that being the response to when people protest those very conditions, being police, courts, and imprisonment. Um, It's also important to say that all of the issues that I've mentioned are of course compounded and worsened uh, when people are subject to racism. Uh, We've seen in recent research that came out just a couple of weeks ago that unemployment rate for black people is triple that for white people after all of the COVID job losses. So this is again um, an issue which is compounded by other forms of oppression and discrimination. Um, I think it's also important to note that the bill goes much wider than protests so there are provisions in there to escalate stop and search, there is a provision to introduce a prevent style reporting duty um, and data sharing agreements around issues of serious violence so that basically means that services are obligated to report to the police when they suspect that people are involved in some way in serious violence and we know already that that's an incredibly harmful Proposals. So when healthcare workers originally were, were kind of invited to start reporting when they encountered people who they thought may be at risk of serious violence, young people who were very afraid that if they went to see a healthcare worker, they would be reported to the police, often decided to sew up their own wounds when they were attacked and injured rather than go and seek medical care because it became clear to them that medical care was also the threat of criminalization. So when we see those forms of data sharing agreements and those kind of reporting duties, we can see the way in which even services that are supposed to be about support, that are supposed to be about care, become embroiled in and co-opted by policing agendas and they leave people without support and without care. I think it's also important to say uh, that there's a huge uh, number of kind of sentencing provisions in the bill, which are about increasing sentencing uh, for a whole range of crimes. I mean, one which has been discussed is this criminal damage to statues. The maximum custodial sentence for that has gone up from two months to 10 years in this bill. And this is in a context where we already have a wildly bloated prison system. We have the largest number of prisoners in the whole of Western Europe. Um, We have had over the course of COVID, almost 80,000 people essentially be in de facto solitary confinement in our prisons under lockdown conditions. And the government have said themselves that they expect that number of prisoners to go up. Uh, in the next six years to reach 100,000 people in prison, kind of uh, heralding an age of mass incarceration in the UK. So again, the government is telling us how they intend to deal with social problems. It is through police and it is through imprisonment. And I think that we have to be clear that that means that this is a political attack. It's not just a political attack on our right to protest, although it is, and it's an incredibly authoritarian and aggressive one, but it's also a political attack on many communities' ability to just live their daily lives. It's telling us that police scrutiny, harassment and violence against specific communities and against people who struggle to get by as a whole is going to be expanded and that the scope for that violence is going to increase uh, and opportunities for recourse for people who are victims of that violence are going to narrow. Um, and ultimately the government is saying that they're going to warehouse people in prisons that are impacted by unemployment, um, and they're going to further control and immiserate our communities, particularly ones who are already the worst affected by police brutality and by this government's other policies. Um, so I think really, in terms of what we do about that, um, you know, if the government are willing to attack us. All in one bill, so many different communities, uh, our very ability to protest, the conditions that the government imposes on us, then we have to take on that fight as one. And it's kind of incumbent upon us to stand in solidarity as a whole range of groups and sections of society who are attacked by this bill. Um, and I think that, you know, for many of us, that means being critical about the sort of solutions that we call for. Uh, And when we fight back as one against this attack, we have to understand that we can't fight for solutions which impede the freedom of others who are attacked in this bill. So that means not advocating for solutions that expand the criminal justice system. Um, I've noted that since the killing of Sarah Everard and the ensuing protests that there have been a number of people who have kind of called on misogyny being made a hate crime or have called for street harassment, kind of sexual harassment on the street to be made a crime, that people could call the police in that situation, that somebody could receive criminal penalty. Um, And I would implore everyone here to think critically about what the implications of inviting further police power and further carceral power means. There was an excellent article that was published today on the Abolitionist Futures website by Sarah Lamble which goes through why hate crime is a false promise and specifically why calls to make misogyny a hate crime are dangerous. Um, and they don't look like solidarity. They don't look like us strengthening our power as a whole to be able to fight back against this kind of attack. Um, There are a number of things which solidarity uh, does look like. I mean, when we think about the issue of violence against women, about the fact that three, particularly in lockdown, three women a week are killed in this country by a partner or ex-partner. You know, when we think about women's wage struggles, this is uh, solidarity against, violence against women. When we think about women being paid enough so that they're able to uh, leave violent relationships, that is supporting women to flee, evade and keep safe from violence. Even things like making sure that universal credit is paid to people individually rather than being paid into one bank account if somebody is in a partnership or a marriage. This means that women are less likely to be subject to financial control. Um, We can talk about supporting uh, refuges and funding refuge services back to above the levels that they were in 2010 so that women are not turned away when they are fleeing violence and they can escape and keep safe. Um, we can talk about innovative solutions, community outreach and support for women in crisis, supporting and funding mental health services so that people who are dealing with the kind of legacies and impact of abuse in their lives are able to receive support. This is what resourcing and supporting people who are experiencing violence looks like. Um, It doesn't look like expanding the criminal justice system. And I would just say, you know, Sisters Uncut are one group who have shown incredible leadership over the past few days. Um, But I would implore everybody to look at kind of local groups in your area, be they activist groups, community and support groups to see what uh, resource and support looks like for people who are subject to these kind of levels of state violence in your community and in your area. Um, We've seen incredible things over the past year. Um, in the Black Lives Matter movement from Sisters Uncut. There are many groups like Docs Not Cops, Schools Against Borders for Children, The Forefront Project, Hackney Account. These are just a few of the organisations that I know and have worked with who are coming up with um, seriously kind of cutting edge, hopeful, supportive ways of thinking about these social problems rather than just meeting them with more repression and state violence. And I think just to kind of end off, This is really what um, abolitionism or kind of abolitionist framing looks at. Um, It recognizes that what police, prisons, uh, courts, and probation services do in our society is that they repress people and they control people and they hide social problems. Uh, There's a famous Angela Davis quote that the ideological work that prisons perform is to relieve us of the responsibility of seriously engaging with the problems of our society. So I'd just like to invite everyone here to start seriously engaging with those problems. Um, Let us not take as collateral damage those who are disappeared or immiserated by the criminal justice system. Um, This doesn't look like increasing funding, Uh, to police. It doesn't look like expanding the powers and scope of police and prisons. It looks like rejecting solutions that advance that kind of hard state power um, and looking at hopeful, imaginative solutions that actually mean we can live in a society that is well supported and flourished, where we can protect ourselves from violence, reduce violence um, and live in in a truly peaceful society, not one that relies on Repressive state architecture.
0: Brilliant. Thanks for that, Becca. And I think that kind of reminder that solutions that we kind of uh, propose in this context, as you say, need to kind of be within the context of that of that solidarity, without harming one another. Hopefully, this event with the kind of array of speakers that we've got is a you know a small demonstration of the kind of alliance and, and solidarity that we can we can bring. And you kind of touched upon it um in the in your kind of concluding remarks there Um, but with regards to kind of you know uh thinking about how we go further than just kind of standing still so kind of preventing like further descent into this kind of police state um what do you think the prospects are for some of these more kind of hopeful visions of what society can look like in terms of kind of realizing them
3: so I think that, you know, it's a cliche, but oftentimes the people who are experiencing the conditions and the reality of you know, whatever a particular particular social issue might be have oftentimes huge amounts of insight into the actual solutions and support that they need. So if I'm thinking about youth like violence, for example, if you look at the work of organisations like the Forefront Project, who provide legal support for young members, but who have recently opened a justice centre where young people are able to access specialised mental health support when they have experienced state violence, they're able to access a free music studio, um, community kind of activism and community organising resources so that they can improve things within their own community, they have come up with all of these kind of solutions to meet the problems that they're seeing in their community. This is often the case with people who are at the kind of sharp end of uh, state violence. There's also an organisation called Take Back the Power in North London, who also look at the issue of youth violence, and they've come up with a charter of a number of kind of demands for power, but also a number of community demands. So they talk about uh, young people needing to have an emotional amnesty, a place where they can freely, without judgment and without fear of criminalization or any kind of uh, repression or uh, response of control, be able to kind of share their fears, their emotions, their worries and issues that are going on in their lives. So these are the kind of provisions that we can start organising whilst we also do the work of fighting back against attacks. We can be supporting these alternatives to flourish as well.
0: Brilliant yeah and that kind of hopeful note I think is is particularly uh, useful for an audience that has maybe kind of you know enjoyed the last few years where it looked like state power might be possible um, and actually you know realizing that you know there are these other avenues in which we can think about what alternatives look like you know even try and live some of those alternatives so hopefully some of those links to some of those organizations are being shared in the chat so thank you so much uh, Becca and also thank you Zara as well for for setting out those kind of technical aspects of the bill. Um, But it's also important that we hear from communities that have experienced the brunt uh, of the kind of violence that we've been talking about. So at this point, I want to ask that we hear from Chantal Lunt, who is the co-founder of the Merseyside BLM Alliance. Uh, And before I hand over, I just want to flag a report that was produced by Netpol, which detailed the various excessive ways in which the BLM protests were policed. Uh, and so, Chantelle, without seeking to re-traumatise yourself or anyone else, um, it will be you know, important to hear about how this violence was experienced during this process uh, and any concerns you have with regards to how this bill will make the, the situation worse. So over to you.
4: Okay. So over the summer, we as a community and as an oppressed group, we made our voices heard and we did so in a peaceful and calm collective manner there, there isn't a report out there that could suggest our process were anything but peaceful and this legislation rather than the government responding in a pragmatic way rather than the government opening up a dialogue with us and wanting to talk to us and wanting to hear what we have to say or to listen we've been screaming on the streets they've introduced legislation which is essentially silencing us which is essentially telling us that if we raise our voices too loud, we will go to prison for 10 years. Um, and that hurts because under this COVID legislation, we've had to seek permission to protest we've had to seek permission to do the things that we should have been able to do within our human rights, it should have been our right to be out on the street protesting and this gave individual and local police forces the power to set conditions, it gave them the power such as we had hours when we were allowed to be on the streets and we had um, police officers constantly prompting us to wrap it up, to wrap it up, to wrap it up we were socially distanced we were adhering to COVID legislation yet we witnessed police officers surveilling us, overtly surveilling us with cameras and when we have since sat down with police chiefs and said why have we been surveilled they justified it as a legitimate way to gather intelligence on us now during a similar period as increased COVID restrictions have come in white-led, male-led kinds of trade union movements have been on the streets protesting and those protests have had no policing, those protests have had no surveillance at all. So we've seen massive disproportionalities in the way that our protests, which are black and often female-led are police compared to the way the white-led TUC protests were policed. And it wasn't until this weekend that they've extended kind of those powers and the the arbitrary kinds of whims of localised police forces to other protests too. And what's quite significant is whenever the laws and legislations that opens up to interpretation or uh, opens up to allow the police discretion over how they respond, the police Do not interpret discretion in the way of, okay. we're going to go for a soft approach. We're going to allow people to protest peacefully. Overwhelmingly, most of the forces in England this weekend chose to police protests which were peaceful and involved women wanting to come together to mourn. They chose to not allow those protests to happen, to use force, use disproportionate sanctions against women. We attended a protest in Liverpool and one of the officers happily told us that... When we said we have the right to be here, we were just standing, we wanted to light a candle. One of the officers happily told us, "Pretty Patel took that right away from you." And she hasn't she hasn't taken that right away from us yet, but that is the attitudes of police officers. They the they see and open them where they are going to have the power at an individual and a localized level to to get us to seek permission to seek permission to be on the streets, And we need to be completely clued up because if we don't know all of the rules and if we don't know all of the stipulations and the specifications that they are now under no obligation to tell us, we could go to prison for 10 years. And let's think about that sentence, 10 years for damaging or touching a statue of a slave trader at a time when convicted rapists are getting five years, five years. 10 years at a time when rape convictions are less than 2%. So if I say that the police resources could be best used elsewhere, that is because it's true. And listening to the debate which was on, on in Parliament today and listening to Priti Patel talk about the disruption to a newspaper delivery which I think made it run maybe an hour or two late saying that it was an attack on democracy whilst at the same time setting in stipulations and laws which would mean the protesters can't cause annoyance can't make anybody annoyed, otherwise we end up in prison for 10 years it's 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 hard not to think that we've we've stepped into an authoritarian and police state overnight it's hard to understand that these conversations have happened and this bill this bill has come out of nowhere and Sandwiched in between a three hundred page document, which does not mention specifically women or crimes against women, once is this really draconian stipulations which seems to be taking away our freedom to protest, our freedom of speech, and the only part that seems to focus on crimes against the black community is actually given police. More powers to target the Black community with things such as stop and search, which if you look at section 60, less than 4% of section 60 stop and searches actually result in a conviction or further action. So if that's not racial profile, and I don't know what is, so to suggest by giving the police further powers to stop and search the black community and specifically talking about the black community when you're introducing these powers. How is that going to help us? How is that not enabling further institutionalised racism, less accountability? Let's look at the conversation about the police no longer being held up to the same standards in terms of if you think about the reasonable person test. So pretty today they announced under the same legislation that when driving, if the police have an accident, they won't be held up to the same standards of a normal driver, a civilian driver. They will be held up to the standards of other police officers. And that is very concerning. Because what a lot of our movements are doing, we are questioning the standards and the decision making processes and the discretion of police officers, because quite often this discretion is always to the detriment of marginalised groups and it's to the detriment of people who don't have voices and it is so important that this that we cannot have our voices taken away because if we are not speaking, if we are not on the ground saying the names of people that most of the country aren't even aware of speaking on Bieber Henry, speaking on Nicole Smallman, two sisters who were murders, and officers at the scene took photos of their bodies and posted them on social media. If organizations like ours aren't speaking on this, who will? Because nobody is. So we cannot have our voices taken away. And under this legislation, the police have power to discriminate against traveler communities. So travel communities can't stop anywhere without being criminalised and it seems to be disproportionately a war on marginalised communities and it's the government it seems to be the government's way of saying that they don't want to hear us so we have to be quiet or we go to prison but this this bill hasn't been passed yet and it is so important to resist and to get on the internet, go to pages like ourselves, Mesa Side BLM Alliance, look at what was circulating. Yesterday, we met with 150 plus organisations and we put out a strong statement to the government, basically saying, kill the bill. the bill. We cannot let this bill pass, this bill cannot pass because it will take away the rights that the people who came before us for tooth and nail for. And once those rights are gone, we can never get them back. So when you think about disruption to monuments and when you think about the fact that we are protesting police officers who kneel on our necks and police officers who murder women, we have to question why the response is so strong and so forceful from the police, why the response is so disproportionate. And I I believe it's not a case of who is protesting. I believe it's a case of why we are protesting. And a lot of the protests, which seem to be feeling the sharp ends of the law at the moment, are protests, which are speaking out and scrutinising the police force. And rightly so, because somebody has to be scrutinising the police force. Somebody has to be saying this isn't making sense. People aren't being convicted. Communities are being targeted. And so after almost a year of communities taken to the streets, taken to the streets during a time when we know that we are at risk and during a time when we know we are vulnerable and we know what it is costing our communities to go on the street, but this means so much to us. For the government's response so quickly to be, to bring in legislation, and to bring in laws that silence us rather than to bring in laws that protect us. It's very hard to understand because those laws already exist. The Public Order Act 1986 already kind of restricts the amount of disruption that people can cause in a public space. And by Priti Patel's own admission, these laws target peaceful protests. These laws target lawful protesters who are merely gathering to make their voices hear And she is saying that we no longer have a voice and if we attempt to use our voice, we will be silenced, we will be put in a cell or we will be fined into poverty so that we can no no longer speak on the issues that count. So it's so important to to kind of collectivise. To take action to circulate this on social media we've created posts that break this law down to the bits that you really need to know they're easily shareable so just check out our social media and kind of take action guys because the law's not been passed yet and as as has already been mentioned before friday labor went we're gonna we're gonna abstain on this but because of the protests and because of the noise that we have been making labor have been forced to act on this so if we achieve that in two days imagine what we can achieve at the end of the week so i know it feels it doesn't feel good and it kind of it feels like they're taking our voices away but they haven't silenced us yet so we have to keep fighting it thank you
0: brilliant thank you chantelle i think you've obviously kind of raised a lot of stuff there and You know, I think in particular, the kind of point you made about, you know, the discretionary powers that the police have had that we've really seen, you know, pick up during the the pandemic. And, you know, as, you know, completely unsurprisingly, all of the research shown, there was a really great article in Navarra and and from Liberty Investigates. um, It was disproportionately applied to to kind of communities of color, to deprived communities, uh, etc. One thing I just wanted to ask, though, so obviously you kind of spoke about you know, who, um, you know, who gets policed, who doesn't get police, and, and even kind of beyond, uh, you know, this bill in particular, you know, what would be useful with regards to, like, you know, solidarity that, um, you know, people with, you know, our kind of politics could show to kind of groups like like BLM?
4: I think it's important to speak on the things that we are speaking on because something which was quite powerful when we met with the police in our local region was that although we've been pointing out for quite a long time, there's massive disproportionalities. We could even show them a time period from which COVID legislation was getting worse and it was getting more stringent. Yeah, other organisations were not being policed in the same way that we were policed in the summer when people were allowed to go out. Yeah, it was significant that a white comrade from another organisation who's been protesting for maybe five years spoke up and said, well, I'm a white protester and I have been to this, this and this protest, including during COVID legislation and during COVID restrictions. And I have observed that you are policing these in a disproportionate manner. And if I'm completely honest with you, the police response to this person raising those concerns was massively different to the police response to a black-led organisation raising those concerns so solidarity is something we massively need we need you know white-led organisations we need marginalised organisations to be looking at the issues that we are facing because you know the black community are often a testing ground for what's to come so while we've been experiencing quite draconian kinds of policing strategies all through summer while we've seen the disproportionalities it's only now that it extends into other communities and other protests so it's very important that we all stand together because well they'll try it on us but then it will happen to everybody else too so it's very important to have that support and just to have people support in our movements because solidarity is is much needed at the moment we all need to be challenging it because it affects us all
0: brilliant thank you chantelle and i think that's something you know we all need to heed is that you know where we we're in a position to, to kind of be brave and courageous and kind of lend that that solidarity elsewhere, then we should take that opportunity. So that's a really kind of useful note to to end on. Um, I mentioned at the beginning of this bill that this, uh, you know, this bill targets the the Gypsy Roma Traveller community. Chantelle also kind of picked up on that as well. Um, And in particular, the part of that community that lives nomadic lives. Um, And to speak on this, we're lucky to have with us Luke Smith, uh, an activist uh, and founder of Labour for GRT, which is a group that campaigns for the rights Uh, equality, representation, and welfare of the GRT community. Um, Luke, the bill seeks to expand the kind of anti-trespass laws in a way that is particularly harmful to the GRT community. But also, you know, in our discussion prior to the event, you spoke really powerfully to how, uh, you know, this will impact family life uh, in the GRT community. So we'd be really grateful if you could kind of share that experience. uh, and, And over to you, Luke.
5: Hi there. Thanks for having me. Honestly, it's a pleasure to speak against, you know, such fantastic people. Honestly, yeah. So yeah, thanks for having me. Um, One thing I would say is that I am sick to the teeth of politicians who are supposedly on the left you know, proposing more police, more prisons. Communities like mine don't need more prisons and more police. We need community investment. We need grassroots sports like boxing. We need proper social work going on. We need, like, all these things. Look, Pretty Patel comes on these streams and says we're all inherently criminal and things like that. Well, look, we've already had previous speakers allude to the fact that minorities are more likely to end up in prisons disproportionately and things like that. We can't all be culturally criminal, can we? We can't all be, you know, prone to, you know, criminality, things like that. The only thing all of our communities have in common is deprivation and poverty. And if you want to solve these issues, right, go, you know, cut the cut the snake's head off, you know, at the root, basically, right? You, we, we need people to, you know, invest in our youth and things like that. Um, So, yeah, I I just want to repeat what Chantel said really on communities like ours are, you know, they're the signals they're the alarms of when a society is really going down the wrong route, when things happen to us. They're coming for all of you. We have been screaming about this for months, and we have been saying that once they take our rights, they are coming for your rights. And we, you know, we wish that you know the protest bill, the protest elements of it, were all that keeps us up at night. We we wish we were in that position. Um, genuinely, I, I just cannot believe that the Labour Party has come at the eleventh hour on the final day and finally decided that draconian powers, authoritarian legislation that targets communities like mine is finally worth opposing. I, you know, David Lammy came to a conference for Traveller Movement years ago and said he'd never turn his back on people like us. Well, you know, I feel so disappointed and let down. Um, and, and these people are lawyers. They're Harvard-educated lawyers. They're Oxford-educated lawyers. They know exactly what this legislation does, and I, I expect better, frankly. But I don't want to. I don't want to preach too much on that. Um, look. The, well, you know we experience some of the most horrific outcomes in the justice system we experience police brutality all the time we've had dogs almost rip a man's leg off we've had irish traveller women who are pregnant with epilepsy dragged across fields right, so violently that you know they, they they've had epileptic fits right you know we've seen it with our own eyes you know what the police are capable of and they're not the solution they're not a one size fit all solution to every problem that a politician is too lazy to solve um, now I'll go on to the issue of unauthorised encampments. Now, the, the issue with this part of the bill is that it's criminalising a form of homelessness. These people have nowhere else to go. They, you know, there's a lack of sites in this country. There's an even bigger lack of transit sites. Um, there's an even bigger lack of negotiated stopping. The You know, these people have nowhere to go and they are with their kids and they're being chased from town to town by high court injunctions because local authorities would rather spend their money criminalizing people and chasing them from town to town than actually invest in proper camps for them, proper transit sites with proper facilities, access to clean water, access to rubbish disposal. Now, the issue with unauthorized encampments is why it baffles me, why no politician has decided to get up and go. There's a reason why there's rubbish, you know, uh, in unauthorized encampments, and that's because local councils are not disposing of the rubbish. When you remove rubbish from families, we don't produce any more or less rubbish than other families, right? But if you remove that, let's look at the bin strikes in Birmingham, where Um, the bin strikes in Birmingham where there's rubbish all in the streets, there's rats everywhere, right? That wasn't our community. It just shows that we're just lacking proper provision and nobody wants to look out for us and and provide us the the idea that, uh, you know, a state can provide us with a safe place to live and access to basic services. Some gypsy and traveller family haven't even had access to clean water over the pandemic. They, they, They were living off of, you know, bottled water and when the pandemic came, People were rushing to buy bottled water, so they genuinely didn't have access to clean water. That in the sixth richest nation in the world. I just cannot, I cannot fathom uh, why, why this is the case. Unauthorised encampments cause a lot of tension you know, in communities, and you know we get a lot of you know racist on the basis of that. It's not just of that, um, by the way. We're talked about by Pretty Patel as if we're inherently criminal. She goes on these podcasts and things and said that we're inherently criminal, culturally criminal, and predisposed to it even. Um, that's what she makes out to people. Now, when people talk about this idea of rubbish and unauthorised encampments, they're only going to be criminal because... Priti Patel is criminalizing them. Um, and we always say, you know, if you don't want rubbish, we'll have the councils come and collect the rubbish. And then people go, oh, well, they don't pay council tax. Well, that is a lie. People do pay council tax, for one. And number two is, if you want them to pay council tax to have the rubbish collected, approve legitimate sites. Have planning permission approved for sites, transit sites, um, uh you know negotiated stopping people will pay ground rent so you know that's not an issue and then the racists get really angry and they go oh yeah well we just don't want them in our area well that's obviously nimbyism and it's obviously racist and it indicates that the power isn't with the Gypsy and track like our community it's not with our community to change things it's with the set of people in the settled community it's with with politicians um who for some reason Don't take our votes into account. For some reason, our votes are worth less. For some reason, our humanity is worth less than other people's. Um, And let's call this bill what it is, right? This is a pogroms bill. This is what it is. They're saying that they're going to seize their property. They're going to um, impose fines on them. They're going to impose prison sentences. You know, all of this is going to lead to more of our children being taken to the care system where our outcomes are even worse. Um, And and the criminal justice system where our outcomes are even worse. Like I said, we don't need carceral solutions. We need community solutions. We need investment and things like that. But nobody wants to listen to us. It's taken months now for people to come and say, oh, actually, you know, these gypsum travellers and these charities about gypsy tablets might actually be on to something. Um yeah, so I just I, I cannot believe that it's taken this long for people to realize that they're not just coming for our our um our rights, they're coming for everybody's rights. And it's really critical that we all stand together. Um, you know, people from the black community, people from the Jewish community, people from our community, you know, uh, it's from every single community. It's because they are coming for you next. If they're not already coming for you, they are coming for you next um like like i say i i just it 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 really does i i I never thought i would get to a time where i would be facing facing down legislation like this against some of the most vulnerable families in the country people that when there was an eviction ban when there was an eviction ban And the government's own guidance was to keep people in the same area, provide them with bins, provide them with sanitation. Michael Gove, a minister for the government, was evicting people from a camp in Surrey Heath. Like It's just clear, clear racism. The idea that transit sites and negotiated stopping aren't possible, but yet people can go to the caravan club on land that isn't approved for 28 days of the year. It's just sheer racism. The fact that we can have pontins come along and discriminate against our names, discriminate against our accents and every else. Um, and it's only sort of when, you know, politicians' names are in are included in these lists even, right, that, that people want to talk about, uh, talk about these issues. These have been going on for years. Like the idea that people think we engage in hyperbole when we say our kids are going to be forcibly adopted. Our kids have been forcibly adopted and placed with non-Gypsy and traveller families, and Roma uh, families as well, for decades. I have had to sit in Parliament in one of the committee rooms and listen to a woman cry about how a, ne- a niece was taken away from them, they, they, and they luckily got her back. But this is happening all the time, and nobody wants to listen to it. And then we get, you know, I, I you know, we just get people—a human rights barrister who's meant to know better, who's meant to know about the law, who has spent his life working in this, coming in and 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 just you know not even kind of giving us the time of day I just you know if your socialism and your equality and your social democracy doesn't include us if our votes don't matter um, and you know our human rights don't matter well then what are what are these people that that's all I could say um, like please just do better in the future um, but yeah that like yeah, like I say, this police brutality that we've seen recently—it's no shock to our community. It really is no shock to our community when we've had to witness police dogs almost tear a man's leg off, um, and, th- and things like that. Like it—it it, it, doesn't—it doesn't shock us at all. But you know, th- these are pogroms. What we're talking about seizing property—this is equivalent to you know what the human rights bill and things like that. Um, you know um, the Egyptians Act of 1530 Um, but but yeah I'll finish on that but people need to do better we all need to stand together all communities uh, because frankly this is a disgrace it's not just about protesting although that is massively important but our community some of the poorest in the country are going to be you know absolutely devastated by this and MPs will have casework coming to their desk about this so they better start caring frankly thank you for having me
0: yeah, thank you, Lou. You mentioned about not preaching, but to be honest, I think a lot of times, you know, people need to be confronted with their hypocrisy uh, and their failings, and I think you did that really well. Um, yourself and Chantelle both mentioned, you know, the idea of, you know, they come for our communities first, and and you know, you know, you should take notice of that, and and obviously, us reacting to this bill is is really important, but there are conditions which have kind of made it easy for you know, the GRT community, the black community, like various communities to be targeted by this bill. You know, what would you say to kind of activists, to socialists, to leftists to say, you know, how do we prevent or how do we change these conditions so that, you know, it's not so easy for your community to be targeted in this way?
5: Well, for one, I agree with what all the speakers have said before, we need to stop thinking about carceral solutions. We need to stop thinking about square pegs for circular holes, right? like. Yeah, you can't do that. To solve unauthorized encampments, come talk to people like me. I'll tell you the solutions. It's not hard. I can tell. I've told Labour councillors. I've told Labour MPs time and time again what the solutions are. But Labour councils like Leeds have already engaged in these solutions like negotiated stopping and all this stuff. It's not about our community and the way we live. It's about creating a scapegoat. Um, and that's what they're going to do. Uh, so...
0: Yeah, brilliant, Luke. And I think, you know, as I say, throughout all of these like uh, talks that we heard, there's a lot of lessons for us to learn, as well as the immediate actions we need to take in terms of preventing this bill. There's obviously a lot that we can take away in terms of kind of, you know, helping to build the society that that we want. Um, our final speaker is is Ali Promfit, an organiser with uh, Global Justice Block, uh, which is a group that was set up to provide Uh, a safer, more inclusive space in in environmental protesting, to give due attention to issues that the Global South are facing when it comes to to climate change, Uh, and most pertinent to tonight's event uh, seeks to better recognize the police threat uh, when protesting. Um, And the bill is clearly targeted at the kinds of actions employed uh, by environmental activists as well as BLM, as was mentioned earlier, um, further building up that that police fra- threat. So so Ali, could you share your experience of policing at climate protests uh, and any concerns that you have on how this bill will diminish the ability to engage uh, in protests on this urgent issue of climate change in, in the future? Over to you, Ali. Yeah,
6: and I just want to start by saying it's just Climate. We don't, we don't not just looking at climate change and environmental activism because where we're coming from at Global Justice Block is it's really very much about the whole system change and the system uh, that has caused the climate crisis is built on racism. It's built on imperialism. It's built on all these things that we're talking about that we're trying to protest against. So it it's not a single issue. Um, I'm going to repeat what people have already said, but because I think it bears saying again, this is an atrocious legislation looking at giving more power to an already racist, already misogynistic, already incredibly violent and corrupt institution to give them the powers to perpetrate more violence and oppression. So we're looking at an organisation which, for example, in 2019, 2020, there was 18 deaths in police custody. But on top of that, there were 107 other people who died from related to incidents of being in contact with the police. And we've talked about the overflowing criminal justice system, having the highest p- prison population in Europe, There's six year waiting list for sentences. This is not the organization that we need to be funding. We need to be defunding the police and putting the money into, into communities. Um, I also wanna say that we're in March we're in March, three months, three months into 2021 and two black people have already been killed in South Wales. So I'd encourage people to get involved with the campaigns, Justice for, for Moyed Bashir and Justice for Mohammed Hassam. Both uh, died following contact with the police. Both have not had the justice that they uh, deserve. In terms of the laws and and how it relates to protest, I'm not really surprised. We've got Priti Patel, who literally does not believe in protest and has said so it, that it's not a legitimate thing, and we've got Boris Johnson, who spent millions, of, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds buying water cannons, which were dangerous and illegal that even um, at the at the time, Home Secretary uh, would not allow. So even the the racist government that we had at the time, the government that did not want protests would not allow what Boris Johnson wanted to do and now he's in charge. So we're not remotely surprised about this. Um, in terms of how it affects groups like the group uh, Global Justice Block that I'm working for, I, um, I think it's working with. I think it's really important to say that this, we set up to to focus the, the voc- provide a space for the voices that were most marginalised, that don't get um, the opportunities to speak, that are most affected by the issues, and those are absolutely the people who this bill will be targeting. More police powers always means um, more violence towards people with disabilities, a trans community, LGBT community more widely, uh, uh, Black, Indigenous, people of colour, Asian communities, which uh, particularly if they um, related to terrorist incidences, women, you know, So, and we are trying to platform the voices of all those people. So even just, for example, um, noisy protests, standing outside the HQ of Shell, standing outside the Home Office um, talking about migrants' rights, making noise. We did a protest outside just to um, provide solidarity to some Indigenous leaders that had come across to stand up at the... Uh, at the annual conference of at uh, the BHP, which enormous corrupt mining institution, and we were there to cheer them on. Illegal, not allowed. Ten-year fine. So these these are really serious things, um, and and the law actually isn't there to police protest that is seriously causing a problem that there's a quote at the beginning of the documentation from Cressida Dick that literally says this is, um, we need ways to deal with primarily protest that is not primarily violent or seriously disorderly. So basically not causing a huge problem, but is a bit disruptive to the status quo. And it talks about noise disrupting the activities of an organization. So if you're outside a HQ of an organization, making your voice known, then potentially you could spend ten years in prison. I I think it's also really important to talk about how the law gives Pretty Patel um, gives her the ability to make new legislation that that criminalizes certain things. She gets to decide what's serious disruption, and she gets to implement that with absolutely no oversight by Parliament. And then the police get to go and and do that. Um, I wanted to just throw in some ways that the police are already overstepping the, the protest powers that they have. Um, so for example, we, we set up, we wanted to work to provide a space that was less risk of arrest for people that wanted to, to participate when XR were doing their rebellion um, in October 2019. Uh, we worked with a group which were XR Disabilities, Those people had their uh, access equipment and support equipment and equipment for their health impounded before the protests had even started by the police. So that was very overstepping the law. Those people were also targeted by the police in ways that made it impossible for them to freely move around a space. also, the police are able to already issue a section 14 order that means that if you know about this order, you have to move on at a certain time. When they believe that a protest has become um, at risk of serious public uh, disorder, they can do that. Uh, they, they preemptively issued one across the whole of London for anybody protesting anything to do with XR in two, uh, 2019 because they were just fed up of the listening so they decided to make it legal anywhere. So all sorts of other protests that were happening. So we were doing some protesting against, uh, with the Pulbari Solidarity Network, against uh, mining in the Pulbari region in Bangladesh, which is really important, but we couldn't do that in case someone thought we were, well, we did do it, but legally then we were cautioned that we might have a problem because people might think we were with XR and we might get into trouble. But they, XR, challenged that in court and, and the Section 14 was illegal and more, more will be going forward to do that. To, so, so legal challenge and challenge does stop this stuff going ahead. Um, I do think that it's a shame that originally XR did not understand the threat with the police and we did work with them on that. They didn't understand that actually the police, their job is not to make you safe. Their job is to make it more difficult for your voice to be heard. Their job is to profile you. Their job is to get information about why you're at the protest. Their job is to report people for um, because they are who are on benefits so that they can take benefits away. Their job is to report people that, who they think it might be able to um, affect their migration cases. I, th- I think that, that we hear all the time the police are just doing their job. Their job is to oppress people. And this law... Is, is very much around making that more possible and making it um, more, I lost my credits, making it more possible and easier for them when already they're way overstepping what's possible. I think it would make protest so difficult in so many situations. We've already seen with the Sarah Everard case where, where people went on a vigil a vigil to pay respects to somebody that had died and because that vigil was seen to draw attention to the inadequacies of the police in protecting women, it was shut down and people were violently arrested. They weren't violently arrested because they were causing a problem because we saw other large gatherings taking place absolutely unharassed. They were shut down because they were making their voices heard and embarrassing the establishment in showing what an absolutely racist, misogynistic and ineffective organisation is that protects um, the interests of business, the interests of government over the interests of the people. Um, and This law is not meant to police everyone the same. And another example of that, and I was reading earlier, in the unauthorised encampments part of this bill, there's a bit um, where it says, and this is why I'll say, um, I will stop, honest, um, that the impact, we want the unauthorised encampments uh, part of this bill to not impact people who are legitimately enjoying the countryside. So basically, we want this to affect Romany and Gypsy community, but we didn't want to say that. But we don't want to um, affect people in their caravans or people with a tent that aren't supposed to be there. Um, so yeah, in in summary, this this law is all about targeting people from marginalised communities, people who need a voice and haven't got one.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Ali. I think, you know, in in what we heard there as well, there was like a real demonstration of of solidarity with regards to the other you know, issues that you highlighted and also just in the way that global uh, justice block works. And and I'm really pleased that you mentioned people with disabilities as well, often overlooked when we're talking about a lot of these things. Um, Yourself and Chantelle also both kind of, you know, mentioned like the need to like learn all of these like various restrictions. Uh, and you, you kind of said about, you know, things being made easier for the police. And, and you know, I wonder, and, and I don't know if you've got a legal background because your kind of knowledge of this this kind of stuff is really impressive. But I wonder if you could speak to, like, you know, the challenge that, you know, you found with regards to, you know, when you spoke to XR, when you speak to activists within Global Justice Block in that, you know, and, and how this bill will make it even more difficult. So just have to be able to like understand all of these various laws and restrictions, particularly when you're on the ground during a protest.
6: Yeah, I don't have a legal background, and actually I haven't been involved in activism for that long. So, I mean, it it really shows the importance of knowing people with a legal background, of knowing people who have longer history of protesting, of knowing people who know how the police work. So, it it really is about working and standing together, um, standing together practically, standing in, in solidarity, both here and across the world, where other draconian policing laws are happening, other countries where it's happening, communicating with each other, knowing how to resist, all all these things are linked. They're all linked to uh, state oppression and the way that we get around them is all working together and spreading that knowledge. So I guess it's looking out for the people that don't know and don't let them get away with it.
0: Yeah, 100%. And kind of drawing those international links, I think is so important. We've obviously heard about, you know, what's happening in India, we regularly know about what's happening in, in the States. Um, and obviously, this is an issue like all across Europe uh, as well. So yeah, thank you so much, Ali. Um, so I just want to recap on some of the actions that uh, we've heard about this evening. Obviously, keep sharing on social media with the hashtag kill the bill. Um, do uh, pick up on that CWU tool to support the amendment that Bell Ribeiro Addy has put together to kill the bill. Um, There's the NetPort petition. Some of these things I'm sure are being reshared in in the chat as well to to oppose the legislation, but also to kind of propose this kind of new charter. Um, Please do support Sisters Uncut. Um, I think the donation link was shared earlier and I'm sure it'll be shared again. And also please do support Black Protest Legal Support. I think hopefully a donation link is, is being shared there various other links have been kind of shared in the chat and you know we'll leave the chat open and i think possibly you can even go back to it if it's on youtube so do pick up on on all of those uh links as well um i just want to mention a couple of twt momentum things that are happening um twt events as i say as i said earlier free for all but only made possible by the contributions of our supporters um if you are able to we know it's a difficult Uh, situation for a lot of people but if you are able to please consider supporting the uh, TWT supporters network by the link in the chat so we can run more events like this Um, if you're looking for some light relief after the very difficult week that we've had and also just the difficult circumstances that we're in um, TWT have released the newest episode of the TWT FM podcast brilliant podcast and it's on dance which I'm sure a lot of us, you know, love to do and are looking forward to do, like late, later in the year. Um, and it looks at how, you know, from striking workers it, shaking their hips to David um, Cusco's perfect house party, um, we explore how issues like space, time, resistance to commodification uh, come to the fore when we move our bodies together. Um, and you can listen to that on the link that's being shared in the chat. Um, or or also just searching for TWTFM in whatever podcast app that you use. Um, We also have another event uh, happening on Thursday, looking at should the left support HS2. Uh, You can find details of that on the TWT uh, Twitter page, at TWT underscore now. Uh, Otherwise, the link, again, is being shared in the chat. Thank you all for joining us. Hopefully, you took a lot from this event and fingers crossed we are able to kill the bill um and as always solidarity and hopefully see you at, at the next event
4: imagine demand and build a world
6: transformed